When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. Psychics, a rather unconventional and divisive element in the realm of true crime investigations. When we encounter claims of clairvoyance intertwined with a case, whether it's an ongoing investigation or one that has grown cold, our reactions tend to vary. For some, concern sets in. They worry that the grieving families of victims might fall prey to unscrupulous mediums, individuals seeking nothing more than a fleeting moment of fame and fortune. It's a valid apprehension, especially when we consider the countless so-called psychics who manage to attain both fame and wealth, only to later be exposed as frauds. I'm looking at you, Sylvia Brown. It's not without reason that psychic credibility often stands on shaky ground. Many of us harbor deep sympathy for the families of crime victims. It's a realm of unimaginable pain and anguish that most of us can barely fathom. So when these families find themselves seemingly left with no other recourse but to seek answers from a psychic, our understanding deepens. The rationale behind families reaching out to psychics becomes quite clear. When a case turns cold and law enforcement appears stumped or when someone is arrested and doubts linger about their culpability, it's only natural to turn to a higher power, however dubious it may seem. I believe that deep down, every one of us, no matter how skeptical we may be, harbors a glimmer of hope that the psychic can truly make a difference, whether it's due to an uncanny coincidence, a stroke of luck, or an authentic supernatural ability. Our shared desire is to reunite families and offer some solace to their enduring pain and quest for resolution. Now, you may be wondering if there are documented instances where psychics played a role in resolving a case. Well, as the snarky saying goes, a stopped clock is right twice a day, and it might surprise you to hear how often psychics do get it right. While the insights of psychics may not provide investigators with a definitive breakthrough, they could serve as a catalyst, urging investigators to scrutinize a suspect more meticulously. It might prompt a fresh examination of evidence and the pursuit of a second expert perspective. Occasionally, though, a psychic's visions lead them directly to a chilling discovery, a lifeless body, a murder weapon, or even a perpetrator. I can't explain the how, but I can certainly recount two cases where such extraordinary occurrences transpired. Today, let's delve into the cases of Susan Jacobson and Andre Daigle. Okay, on to the show. 
Susan Jacobson was born in 1962 to parents Ellen and William Jacobson. She was part of a bustling family of seven. Raised on Staten Island, New York, the Jacobson siblings all led a quiet, peaceful life growing up. Despite the occasional squabbles, their large family maintained a strong and affectionate bond with one another. Susan was a bright, active young girl. She loved playing baseball, a passion she carried through her teenage years. She spent much of her summers playing various ball games with teams made up of neighborhood kids, biking to the park to spend relaxing afternoons by the duck pond, and playing card games with her siblings. One not-so-peaceful event, however, happened once Susan began dating at the age of 13. Her first boyfriend was a boy named Dempsey Hawkins, who was two years older than her at 15 years old. Apparently, they met when Susan accidentally smacked him in the face with a baseball bat, but that was quickly forgiven and the two were good friends for a while before they began dating. Hawkins, on the other hand, hailed from London, England, though he relocated to the U.S. at the tender age of six. The move was prompted by his father's service in the U.S. Air Force. However, sources are conflicted about the relationship Hawkins had with his father, some saying the two didn't have contact with each other, or even going so far as to say that they had never met until he was a teenager. Unfortunately, there weren't any articles that really cleared up this strange point. Susan's parents had reservations about their daughter's relationship with Hawkins. The Jacobsons were a white family, while Hawkins was mixed race. His father was a black American from Illinois, and his mother was a white Englishwoman. Susan's mother, Ellen, later said they warned the young couple that they were leaving themselves wide open for criticism because of the race problem but neither teen cared and continued to see each other. Hawkins and Susan had been dating for about a year by January 1976, when Susan got a bit of a scare. The then 13-year-old realized she was pregnant. This understandably alarmed the Jacobsons, since their daughter was too young and immature, physically as well as developmentally, to be going through a pregnancy. Susan had an abortion, which must have been something of a relief for her parents even though it was undoubtedly still a traumatic experience for such a young girl to go through. It had to be the less dangerous option than a 13-year-old carrying a pregnancy to term. It should be no real surprise to any of us that William and Ellen believed Hawkins was an inappropriate match for their daughter following this series of events, and they pleaded with Susan to end the relationship. It appeared that this worked, and they believed that the two stopped going out together. What they didn't know was that Susan and Hawkins may have simply kept seeing each other in secret. And unfortunately, peace was not restored to the Jacobson family for long. Susan was 14 years old when she left home on May 15, 1976. She was heading to work at an ice cream parlor near her home, an after-school job that proved to Susan's parents that she was responsible. It was a warm day and the parlor would have been busy making a decent profit as locals came inside for a cool treat and some shade. Sadly, Susan never showed up for work that day. And she never came home again. The Jacobsons knew something was wrong when dinner time passed by. Night fell and their teenage daughter still wasn't home. They went to report her missing to the police, but officials were not concerned believing that Susan was a troubled child who had just run away from home, possibly with a boyfriend. But these parents knew their daughter, and they knew she would never have run away. Besides, Susan had only had one boyfriend, who was easy enough to find. 
Dempsey Hawkins was still in town, with no idea where his ex-girlfriend could be. The family searched for Susan themselves, but as days passed, there was still no sign of the teenager, and police were doing nothing to help them. Then months passed, and still nothing, and still no help from the police. And by this point, all the leads that might have been found in the immediate aftermath of Susan's disappearance were long gone. So Susan's parents did the only thing they could think of. They reached out to a self-proclaimed psychic detective based in New Jersey. They were desperate for any new leads, no matter how slim the chances of them being fruitful were. Who was the psychic? Well, Dorothy Allison had been assisting police investigations for over a decade, including the kidnapping of Patty Hearst two years earlier in 1974. But she was a controversial figure, and many skeptics and members of the police considered her to be a fraud. Some even claimed in later years that she had attempted to bribe them to say she had helped them solve a case. But this was still 1976, and all the Jacobsons cared about was that Dorothy was someone who tried to find missing children. Dorothy agreed to meet with them immediately to lend any assistance she could, even if that brought them news that was the last thing any family would want to hear. In a vision Dorothy experienced, she claimed to witness Susan's death as she was strangled by a young man. Though she could not give much more information, she did have fleeting points of reference where this event had taken place. An abandoned car, the smell of fuel, two smokestacks, and the letters M.A.R. and red spray paint. Susan's father, William Jacobson, got to work on trying to identify whether these factors could point to any local areas. Again, this was all done with little to no help from the police. After some time, William checked out an abandoned shipyard, Downey Shipyard, located on Port Ivory at the northern shore of Staten Island. This shipyard had been in use during World War I and laid more or less dormant for the last 30 years. But during William's initial visit to the lot, he discovered it fit the description Dorothy gave almost perfectly. This lot had two smokestacks, an abandoned car, and a rock with the letters M.A.R. spray-painted on it. With no other leads to work on, they began searching the immediate area for signs of Susan. Around 40 volunteers made themselves available to investigate the lot in what William described as less-than-ideal conditions. Mosquitoes were rampant, wild animals interrupted the search, and thick weeds hampered any efforts to be thorough. But Susan was missing so each and every volunteer did everything they could to find her. Well, almost everyone did. One person in particular was acting strangely, according to William, and it was someone the family didn't quite trust because of the events of the previous year. Dempsey Hawkins, Susan's ex-boyfriend, ranged from useless to actively unhelpful and apparently spent large swaths of the search sitting on the shoreline looking out at the world, doing nothing. Apparently, he would pick random items from the ground and ask one of her sisters if it belonged to Susan, even though it was evidently an old piece of discarded trash. He would also repeatedly call out for Susan, as though she hadn't already been missing for a significant amount of time, and the area had already been searched numerous times. Nobody else was shouting her name. Many of them, in their hearts, knew they were searching for a body. 
Hawkins' erratic behavior didn't conclude with his unusual actions during the searches. He floated the notion that Susan might have traveled to places like Florida or Chicago. When questioned about his reasoning, his responses remained elusive, brushed off as though they were inconsequential. This puzzling behavior not only disrupted the search efforts, but also aroused suspicion among those close to the family, leaving them with a lingering sense that Hawkins might be concealing more than he was willing to reveal. They had no idea how right they were. At this point, nobody knew that Hawkins had told two people he was close with, a cousin and a friend, that he had strangled Susan. It didn't seem that they ever contacted police or came forward with this information. Maybe they were scared of Hawkins, or maybe they thought he was making an awful joke about the situation, resorting to some kind of gallows humor to cope. But this information didn't come to light for years. In April 1977, just under a year after Susan's disappearance, Hawkins abruptly left and went to stay with his father in Joppa, Illinois. That was the end of him helping the grieving family search for their little girl. Susan's case had grown cold before it even had a chance to be properly investigated. It would be another two long years before her remains were discovered. The abandoned site in Port Ivory harbored a series of peculiar underground chambers, accessible through openings on the surface. These subterranean spaces were akin to bunkers and may have been remnants of bomb shelters from the factory's wartime activity. It is unclear whether Susan's family were aware of these bunkers and if they had managed to search them early on in Susan's disappearance, but none of them ever found evidence of her being there if they did. Then, on March 25, 1978, a boy stumbled across a 55-gallon oil barrel in one of the underground bunkers. He pried it open and was shocked to see bones inside. At first, he believed they must have belonged to a dog, maybe somebody burying a pet in a peculiar way. But later, he returned to the barrel with two of his friends, and they noticed something he hadn't seen. Not only were there bones inside, but also pieces of clothing, sneakers, and what looked like material from a pair of pants. Why would human clothing be in a barrel with bones that belonged to any animal that wasn't a human being? Horrified with what they had discovered, the boys went straight home and called the police. The remains were confirmed as being human, and it wasn't long at all before they were identified as belonging to 14-year-old Susan Jacobson. Susan never ran away, and was never really missing. She was right there the whole time. Right underneath the lot that matched the vision given to her father by psychic Dorothy Allison. And that wasn't all Dorothy was right about. The postmortem examination of Susan's remains revealed that her cause of death had likely been strangulation. So if Dorothy was right about everything else, that only left one more factor to determine. Who had been the young man she had envisioned murdering Susan Jacobson? Well, there was only ever really one suspect once Susan's body was found, and you probably know where this is going. Exact details regarding the investigation are scarce, but what we do know that one way or another, Hawkins' admission to his cousin about murdering Susan came out. Before long, Dempsey Hawkins was arrested for the murder of his ex-girlfriend, and he was put on trial in February 1979. 
The Jacobson family were utterly devastated by the news that Susan had been murdered at the hands of her first love and horrified that he had been there the whole time they searched, pretending to help. One of Susan's sisters, Barbara, had commented that he was a very convincing liar who had the family all fooled for so long. Another sister, Janice, came to a painful realization when they discovered where Susan's body was. She realized that the suggestions Hawkins made during their searches, the ones about states or cities Susan might have run away to, they all occurred when they were narrowing in on the area they now knew her body had been hidden. Every time they got close, Hawkins had been lying to cover his own tracks. Despite maintaining his innocence throughout the investigation, trial, and sentencing, Dempsey Hawkins was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 22 years behind bars. It took nearly 20 of those years for Hawkins to stop lying. In the letter he wrote to the Jacobson family, he finally admitted to strangling Susan to death. He gave more detail in a telephone interview with the New York Times. Hawkins claimed that all this had happened because of the breakup. He said he was desperately in love with Susan and believed he couldn't live without her, but the idea of her being with anyone else was even worse. Susan might have been truly trying to break up with Hawkins on the day she died, as she told her parents she had done long before. Or maybe she had already broken up with him and she climbed down into the bunker that day, believing she was spending time with just a friend. He said that it was warm that day, and he had taken his shirt off. According to the New York Times, Hawkins said, We were sitting side by side, with the arm of the t-shirt, I put it around her neck, as if to kiss her, and I just started squeezing it. Her hands went up to the shirt, and I just looked away and just kept squeezing the shirt. Then, once it was clear that Susan was never getting back up again, I picked up her body and put it in a barrel and put the barrel against a wall so that it was concealed. Hawkins became eligible for parole in 2000, and the Jacobsons considered it their duty to try and make sure Susan's murderer stayed behind bars. William, in his 60s by this point, told reporters that his six surviving children were terrified Hawkins would come after them if he ever got released, and that his sons had heard word that Hawkins had actually threatened to do so. They cited Hawkins' ability to lie and manipulate seamlessly following the murder as part of the reason he should remain in prison. How could anyone really know if he was genuinely remorseful? How could they be sure that he never intended to kill again? The court largely agreed with this, the parole chief stating that releasing Hawkins would be incompatible with the welfare and safety of the community. Ten times he applied for parole and failed, the final failed attempt being in August 2016. Many supporters of the notion of prisoner rehabilitation considered this unfair. Is it really just and fair for a man who committed a crime at 16 to be behind bars for his entire life? And, as is strongly possible, would Hawkins have been paroled if he was white, rather than black? During these final appeals, Hawkins' lawyer had an idea. Why not try to get him deported back to the UK, where he might have a chance at release? Unbelievably, this worked. Hawkins' lawyer, Issa Kohler-Hausman, reached out to a Cambridge professor, Dr. Ruth Armstrong, who is known for working with prisoners in order to educate and rehabilitate them. Armstrong co-founded a scheme called Learning Together, which was a partly government-funded program where students and prisoners learn together 
and she campaigned for Hawkins' release. She was so confident in Hawkins' ability to be rehabilitated that she got him employment working at her husband's Mexican restaurant on his release. So, when Hawkins was denied parole in the U.S. in August 2016, he was told he could be conditionally paroled if he was returned to the U.K. The reasons given for approval in the U.K. included his history as a model prisoner and his 38 years of imprisonment, support from human rights groups, and positive letters from the British Consulate General. At the same time, they detailed why they would not approve parole in the U.S. Quote, In short, you still seem capable of deception regarding criminal thoughts and behavior. Your actions exhibit a cruel deliberation and contempt that prompt us to find that your release in the United States would deprecate the seriousness of the crime as to undermine the respect for law. Nonetheless, Hawkins was released to the UK in 2017. His name was changed, he got a job, and the Jacobsons could rest uneasy. The killer of their beloved Susan was far away, banned from ever returning to the US, but he was free. Susan's sister Barbara told reporters that she considered him very capable of killing again, going on to add, I pray that I'm wrong, that he's changed and that will make something positive with his life because my sister never got the chance to lead hers, but I'm very fearful that he'll commit another crime. Since his release, Hawkins has only had one publicized act of dubious behavior. Under his new name, he began to use the dating site meetup.com and attended speed dating events. One woman, a teacher named Caroline, rejected him at one of those events, but he still managed to keep up with her. He had somehow gotten her phone number at the event and repeatedly contacted her on WhatsApp to flirt, asked to meet up, and make comments on photos of her. Caroline told reporters that she now sleeps with a knife under her pillow in fear that he will somehow manage to get her address, the same way he found out her phone number. It is not clear whether Hawkins was penalized for this behavior or if it was brought to the courts. We can only hope that nobody else falls prey to Hawkins' creeping gaze and that the people who love Susan Jacobson are one day able to feel safe and remember their beloved little girl in peace. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns helps you and your kids save and invest. The best part, there's no expertise required. Investments are automatically put into diversified portfolios based on your risk tolerance. Acorns even has exclusive financial education content for your whole family. I know firsthand how important it is to save for the future when you have kids, and I found Acorns to be a crucial tool. The sooner you start investing, the more chance your money has to grow over time. From Acorns, mighty oaks do grow. Head to acorns.com slash TCFC to download Acorns to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid testimonial and may not be representative of all clients. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash TCFC. Investment advisory services offered by Acorns Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Brokerage services provided by Acorn Securities, LLC an SEC-registered broker-dealer and member FINRA slash SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. Hey there, busy achievers. Are you feeling the crunch of jam-packed days as the fall season approaches? 
Well, let me tell you about Factor, the ultimate secret to staying fueled and focused. Picture this, Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, delivering chef-prepared, dietitian approved meals straight to your door and no more stressing about cooking or compromising on nutrition. It's time to save time and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. Summer's not over and neither are your goals. Skip the grocery store hassle and the chopping because Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes. Heat, enjoy, and conquer your goals. Revamp your routine with 34-plus flavorful meals ready in a heartbeat. Elevate your experience with Gourmet Plus options featuring premium ingredients like truffle butter and asparagus, pure indulgence for your taste buds. Lunch to go, anyone? Keep your energy soaring with effortless, wholesome meals, perfect for on-the-go lifestyles. And for those calorie-conscious champs, dive into calorie-smart meals under 550 calories per serving. Need a protein boost? Factors got your back with Protein Plus meals packing 30 grams of protein or more. And remember to explore over 45 add-ons from apple cinnamon pancakes to invigorating cold-pressed juices. The best part, you're not just eating well, you're making a sustainable choice. Factor offsets 100% of delivery emissions and sources renewable energy. And we're all about sustainably sourced seafood. So, champions of August, it's time to seize the moment. Say goodbye to prep and mess. Go to factormeals.com slash laney50 and lock in 50% off with the code laney50. That's F-A-C-T-O-R-M-E-A-L-S dot com slash L-A-N-I-E 50. Code laney50 for 50% off. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Our next case takes place in New Orleans, Louisiana, where on June 9, 1987, two friends met up for dinner. They had no way of knowing that afterwards, one of the two would never be seen alive again. Andre Daigle was born in 1960, the youngest boy in a family of seven children. Their father, Stanley, was a retail jewelry salesman who made just enough to support such a large family. Although there wasn't any information we could find about the children's mother, we do know that the entire family were incredibly close, which was lucky for all of their sakes, seeing as they didn't have a huge house to accommodate everyone. Coexisting peacefully was necessary in a modest three-bedroom home, where all four boys shared one room, and all three girls shared another. But they didn't just coexist. They had a deep, loving family bond between them all that only grew stronger as they all got older. Andre was a fun, lively child who you simply could not help but love, something that would never change about him. 
When he got a little older, he took up playing the guitar and would spend as much of his free time as he could strumming its strings. Andre was also a skilled sportsman and played football with the John Curtis Patriots in high school, the jewel of his athletic crown being the team winning the state football championship with him in it. In every aspect, Andre was an extraordinarily gifted young man, his talents almost rivaled by his boundless kindness. A touching anecdote shared by one of his brothers, Chris, exemplified Andre's compassionate nature. It was a story of Andre's selflessness, how he once pulled over to assist a complete stranger on the roadside in the dead of night. Chris recounted that the individual appeared to be in distress in a troubled state, yet Andre chose to halt his car and inquire about their well-being, a gesture that stood out in stark contrast to the indifference of countless others who would have simply driven on by. Chris and Andre considered themselves particularly close to each other, even for their family. When they were young and still sharing a bedroom between four boys, they shared one bed at night. And according to Weekly Wire, when the brothers grew up, they even started a business together, installing ceramic bathtub enclosures, before Andre went into carpentry and Chris went into electronics. By the time Andre was 27, he was settled happily into his life. Photos of Andre showed a strong, good-looking man with an easygoing, bright smile and a strong figure from the physically strenuous career he had chosen, working as a carpenter. His partner in business was a man named Joe Lapinto, who he had been friends with as long as anyone could remember, almost another brother to Andre. He still lived at home with his parents, and most of his friends and family still lived near enough to see him on a regular basis. What more could a young man possibly want? June 9, 1987, was a Tuesday. Andre had arranged to meet up with one of those friends who lived nearby, a man named Nick Shelley. When Andre finished work that day, he stopped off at his brother Chris's house to feed his cats, as he was house-sitting while Chris was away, then headed out to meet Nick for dinner at a Mexican restaurant. After their meal, they drove past a bar that they noticed had a pool table available and decided they should play a few rounds of pool to wind down. Loser buys the beers, obviously. Nick noticed a woman taking interest in Andre almost immediately after they started playing. She introduced herself as Thelma and spoke to Andre every time he went back to the bar. Nick noticed that Thelma was a little odd, saying that she was almost hiding her face from him even as she spoke to his friend. It isn't clear what else transpired between the two, but by the time Nick and Andre were leaving, Thelma apparently felt confident enough to ask Andre for a ride home. She explained that she needed to check on a friend who was pregnant, and because she didn't have a car, Andre was her best chance at getting home quickly. As Chris Dagel pointed out, Andre possessed an inherent willingness to assist others, regardless of the circumstances. It didn't matter if the situation seemed a bit peculiar, like when a woman who had been casually enjoying drinks at a bar suddenly required transportation home, despite having initially arrived at the bar independently. Even if she had spent the entire evening deliberately avoiding eye contact with Nick, to the point where it left him feeling somewhat disconcerted. Andre asked Nick if he wanted to meet up at another bar when he had dropped Thelma off, but Nick decided to turn in for the night. It was a Tuesday after all, so he probably had work the next day, and they could always catch up again later, right? Sadly, we know that was not the case. There was no later for Andre Daigle. 
He didn't show up to work on Wednesday morning and didn't contact friend and business partner Joe Lapinto to let him know he couldn't make it in. Joe called Andre's parents at their home and they called Chris, since it was Chris's house Andre had been staying at. Nobody knew where Andre was and nobody had heard from him. And with Andre, this was so unusual that it was an immediate cause for panic. Chris hurried home from vacation with his wife and children two days later to help search for his youngest brother. He arrived back late that Thursday night, and a search party gathered at the Daigle parents' home. This included Chris and his family, one of the Daigle sisters and her family, and both Joe Lapinto and Nick Shelley. They printed out missing persons flyers and coordinated where each member of the search party would share them to cover as much of New Orleans as possible, all while they were looking for Andre's truck, which had disappeared right along with him. Nick took Chris and went back to the bar he and Andre had played pool in, trying to see if anyone there knew Thelma and how to get in touch with her, or if Andre had shown back up again. But the patrons and the employees of this bar were, to put it bluntly, shady. They got almost hostile, to the point that Nick and Chris didn't feel safe and left. Of course, the Daigles contacted police, but they were unmoved. According to Chris, Sheriff Harry Lee said that for all they knew, Andre could have run away with the sex worker and was absolutely fine. Which was utter speculation with absolutely nothing to back it up. When pressured, Sheriff Lee told the family that they would put out a bolo on Andre but none of the police the family encountered during their search efforts had ever heard about their missing brother. Most of the Daigle family was still in Louisiana and their surrounding states, but one sister was all the way in California, desperately waiting for any news of her brother. Elise Daigle McKinley turned to an unlikely avenue for help. Before she knew Andre had gone missing, Elise had gone to a woman named Rosemarie Kerr for a psychic reading for a bit of fun. But whatever Rosemarie told her must have been compelling, because it was to Rosemarie she returned, begging her to help find Andre. Rosemarie had been a psychic since she had a prophetic dream at four years old. What seemed like an unfortunate nightmare about a burning home became all too real only a few weeks later, when a family member set fire to his home with his wife and child locked inside. At the psychic's request, Elise brought a photo of Andre with her to the reading as well as a map of Louisiana, the state where Andre and the rest of the Daigle clan lived. As soon as Elise got to her for their appointment that Saturday, four days after Andre had last been seen, Rosemarie placed her hands on the photo and began to concentrate. She claimed to feel an extreme pain like she had been hit over the head with a blunt object and heard a voice saying, My head is killing me. She then described a series of images that came to her as she touched the photo and the map. A truck with a long scratch on the side, a man with long blonde hair, a swamp, a long bridge, a sandy beach, and the number seven. The detail about the truck was especially shocking to Elise, as she knew her brother drove a vehicle with a distinctive scratch along one side exactly as Rosemary had described. Anxious for more information, she waited for Rosemary to finish her psychic investigation. Rosemary then felt a jolt as she passed her hand over the map. Her fingers came to rest over a town called Slidell, and Rosemary told Elise that if they wanted to find Andre, they needed to look there, and quickly. Right away, Elise called her family back in Louisiana. 
The time difference made it nearly midnight for them, and the Daigle search party were exhausted after days of looking for their beloved Andre. But when they received that phone call, Chris described a strange feeling washing over everyone, saying, We all got goosebumps, started crying. We knew somehow this was it. Searchers ran for their vehicles and cars peeled away from the Daigle home. Chris took his wife Virginia and Andre's friends Joey and Nick with him, while his sister followed behind in her own car in case they needed to split up. The convoy were speeding towards Slidell, 30 miles outside New Orleans, and spent the whole drive telling Andre they were coming for him, something Rosemary had told them to do. Then, something big that can only be described as miraculous happened. Just before the five-mile bridge that led into Slidell, Joey shouted out, That's it! That's the truck! And it was. Andre's truck, with its long, distinctive scar along one side, was next to them on the interstate, but Andre wasn't inside it. Instead, there were two men that neither Chris nor anyone else recognized. Chris slowed the car down for just a moment so that he could yell to his sister, driving the other vehicle. He told her to go call their mom and get her to call the police, giving the details of where the truck was headed. We are going east on the I-10. The men in Andre's truck soon realized they were being followed and tried to shake off their pursuers, but Chris kept firmly on their tail. He began to panic when the truck left the interstate and started leading them down a deserted road surrounded by forest. If the police came, they would be looking on I-10, not on this quiet trail. But there was no other option. Chris continued to follow the truck. When the truck slowed at a dead end, turned around and turned off the lights, Chris stopped the car. Nick spotted a bar at the end of the dead-end street and took off at a run to get inside and call the police to update them on their location. Then, the truck started moving again towards the Daco vehicle. Joey and Chris sheltered behind the car's doors. Joey, armed with the thirty-eight, and Virginia hid on the floor as the truck passed. As soon as it got past them, it took off again, and the Daigles scrambled in pursuit, with no idea they had been granted another miracle, a police car parked on that very highway that had been deserted only minutes earlier. They stopped by the car, which seated Pearl River Officer Tom Corley and his partner. After a moment of confusion when everyone tried to speak at once, Virginia produced one of Andre's missing flyers. In the blink of an eye, everything shifted and the chase began once more, this time led by a police car. Chris recalls that they, the police officers, and the men in Andre's truck were all driving a hundred miles per hour. Those men seemed to realize that fleeing further was pointless now that the police were on their tail, and finally stopped the vehicle. Officer Corley requested the driver's license and asked what had happened to the owner of the vehicle. The driver had no license and neither responded to the query about Andre, who was not in the car. What was in the car, however, were two handguns on the floor of the passenger seat, with no proof of anything except being in possession of a stolen vehicle. The two men were booked under suspicion of that charge. These two men were Charles Gervais and Michael Phillips. Gervais had been described as the polar opposite of everything Andre was, a scruffy loner type raised in an allegedly abusive household, with previous time spent in jail for burglary. Phillips was also physically similar to Gervais, but sported the long blonde hair that Rosemary Kerr had seen in her vision. His lawyer described him as just a petty criminal, a completely unremarkable person. 
both men lived together with one more person, Philip's girlfriend, Thelma Horn, and Gervais had both his housemates wrapped around his finger. The three were reportedly deep in drugs, which may explain why they were willing to entertain certain delusions. For example, Gervais had grand plans of taking a car and weapons on a road trip with the purpose of taking down a Texas mafia family to gain control of a prostitution ring. He had convinced Phillips that they had to murder someone to prove themselves first, and the two of them in turn had convinced Thelma to lure someone back to their apartment. And it didn't take all too long for them to admit it. At first, when the men had been arrested for stealing the vehicle and taken to the station, Phillips claimed he had no idea what was happening. He said that Gervais had just showed up to their hotel with a truck and asked for an attorney. Then his story changed. He said Gervais had picked him up at his sister's house, and the police chief told him to pick one version or the other to be on the record. Gervais refused to speak at all without an attorney present, until the police chief gave Phillips a piece of paper to write his statement down on. When Gervais saw Phillips dutifully writing something down, he assumed he was being ratted out. He demanded to see the chief, and as soon as he was within earshot, he confessed, All right, we did it. We killed him. That was when the whole story of what had happened on the night of June 9, 1987 came out, or at least one version of it. Apparently, Thelma had been unsuccessful at two other bars before Gervais and Phillips dropped her off at the bar Andre and Nick ended up patronizing. Choosing Andre as her victim, it seems, was completely random, which really makes all of this feel a lot more tragic. When Thelma asked Andre to take her home, she managed to get him inside somehow. It isn't clear exactly how. Maybe she offered him a drink and thanks for giving her a ride, or something similar. Once inside, she excused herself to go check on her pregnant friend, and Andre fell asleep on the couch as he waited for her to come back. Gervais and Phillips then took turns assaulting Andre Daigle, hitting him over the head with a hammer. When that failed to kill Andre, they tried to strangle him with a coat hanger and a cord from a vacuum cleaner, and jumped up and down on his back. They hid Andre's body in the couch he had fallen asleep in, and secured it with some wooden boards. But before they could see about disposing of Andre's body properly, their apartment manager came over for a surprise inspection. Gervais was able to lie his way out of the situation, claiming the blood on the floor was actually paint from attempting to renovate the apartment before moving out. For the whole visit, Gervais was sitting on the couch that contained Andre's body. Once the manager left, the men carried the couch into Andre's car and drove it out to Manchek Swamp, dumping the couch there and Andre with it. They then dropped Thelma off with her mother and got a room in a cheap hotel, planning to make that their base of operations as they gathered guns and money for their big mafia-murdering plan. They committed a burglary in New Orleans around this time, and that is where they acquired the two guns that were found in the passenger side of Andre's car. With these confessions, police were able to recover Andre's body. It was found by a sandy beach in the Monshock Swamp, not far from the highway's exit 7, elements that had both been seen by psychic Rosemarie Kerr in her vision of Andre's death, and when the autopsy was carried out on his body, Andre's skull was revealed to have been fractured 11 times by the claw hammer that Gervais and Phillips had attacked him with. This matched up both with Rosemary's head pain and hearing the phrase, my head is killing me during her vision. 
Between the location of Andre's truck and murderers, the state of his body, and where it had been dumped, Rosemary's vision was so accurate that she was asked to testify as a witness in the trial, the first time a psychic had ever done so. The trials weren't totally straightforward. There were mistrials and many asides that dragged them out far more than necessary. But eventually, Charles Gervais pleaded guilty to the second-degree murder of Andre Daigle in November 1987. He received life in prison without the possibility of parole. Michael Phillips and Thelma Horn were also convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Gervais later claimed the murder was part of an initiation into a satanic cult, but I won't say more because he very clearly did this for attention, hoping to follow in the footsteps of Charles Manson, and neither of those men deserve any form of attention that they seek. Someone who did, and does, deserve all the glory in the world was Andre Daigle. He was so very loved that there was barely room to move in the church that held his funeral services. During the trials, the courtroom was flooded with friends and family waiting to see justice for their beloved son, brother, and friend. Andre Daigle was somebody who everyone saw as a best friend, and who would help out any stranger in a moment of need without a second thought. That's all we have for today's episode. We started today talking about the involvement of psychics in criminal investigations, and I don't know if this changed anybody's opinions on the matter. When it comes to Dorothy Allison and Rosemary Kerr, did they truly experience these visions? Did they wield powers that the rest of us can only dream of? Or was it all just a series of lucky guesses? Well, I'll temper those questions with a few more. Does it really matter how true it is if it granted the families even a moment of comfort, of hope, if it brought much-needed attention to a missing persons case, if it encouraged the police to look a little further? You can decide for yourself. I'll finish by saying what we already know. Susan Jacobson and Andre Daigle were born into large families who all loved them so much. They were born only two years apart, and although Andre got to live 13 years longer than Susan, neither of them deserved to have their lives so abruptly and mercilessly ended. If they were alive today, Susan would be 61 years old, and Andre would be 63. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at true crime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash true crime cases W Laney, and Instagram at True Crime Cases with Lainey. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at LaineyHobbsBO or on TikTok at LaineyHobbs. And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of the Inky Paw Print, with content editing by Laney Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at the inkypawprint.com. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! 
But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So, I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.